Tonight's New Testament reading is Romans 8, 1 to 13, and it's on page 4 of your bulletin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the, on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks as we come now to open your word. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word to us, reviving the soul, satisfying our hearts, giving us life, new life that we receive as we hear and believe. And so we ask that you would help us to open up our minds, to listen, and that you would give us faith so that we would receive these words into our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have watched the movie, The Beauty and the Beast? Anyone? Good. And I'm not talking about the 1946 uh, French film, uh, but the uh, 1991 Disney film, uh, Beauty and the Beast. It's a story of a young prince who refuses to provide shelter for an old lady uh, who happens to be an enchantress. And she disguised herself uh, as an old beggar uh, to really test his heart, and seeing his true self, right, his pride, his selfishness, lack of compassion, the enchantress turns him into a hideous beast, uh, which reflects his inner self. And the only thing that can break this spell is love, is love. And through a series of unfortunate events, a young girl named Belle ends up replacing her father as a prisoner in Beast Castle, and the two, over time, become friends. I love that song. There must be something there that there wasn't there before. And uh, gradually, the beast uh, is transformed from table manners 
to self-sacrifice. And in the end of the movie, you know, he transforms and he becomes this handsome prince. Well, kind of handsome, right, compared to the other princes. But he transforms into a handsome prince, uh, sort of completing the transformation, right? Transformed by love. The theologians call that sanctification. Regaining our moral beauty and becoming like Christ in his moral character. And that's the subject of our studies at winter term this year. We got one more Wednesday, so I'm putting in a plug. Please come and join us. Uh, Russ Whitfield from Mosaic will be uh, wrapping things up this Wednesday. This idea of growing to be like Christ is not an easy calling. For anyone who has taken this calling seriously, they know how hard it is to deny themselves, to take up the cross, and follow Christ in this narrow, bloody path. And one day, all that will end. It will all end. Our struggles will come to an end, and imperfection will give way to perfection as we behold Christ, and his glory is poured into us. But in the meantime, we live out our sanctification with hope that we are not left as orphans to fend for ourselves, but as his people, already drawn near to him, accepted by him, adopted as children, and celebrated as his beloved. Living out this reality here and now, this is what sanctification is all about. In our relationships, at home, with our roommates, our family members, at work, even with the most difficult co-workers we have, and in our neighborhoods, especially today, when D.C. seems to be divided more than ever, we're called to live out this reality and identity that we have in Christ. And Apostle Paul calls this life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit which is completely different uh, from the life under the law, as we will see. So tonight, we want to look at two things. First, freedom that is accompanied by life in the Spirit and obedience that grows out of that freedom. So let's take a look at freedom. Chapter 8 begins with this glorious announcement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. we got to let that sink in a bit. We've read Romans 8 far too many times. If we sort of glance past that and we're looking for other, more richer things, if you've ever been in trouble, if you've ever been caught, and that, that penalty is hanging over your head, you know just exactly how glorious these words are. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. It has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The key phrase I want us to look at is this phrase, in Christ Jesus. This theological concept is really the central truth in the doctrine of salvation. 
So what does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ in the broadest sense is to be in a relationship with him. To be in right relationship with Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by placing our full confidence in the divine person and the finished work of Christ for our salvation. You see, all of us, even before we come to faith, and even after, too, the struggle for self-salvation is relentless, and it leaves us often exhausted or crushed. The words, and you will be like God, still tempt us. And we think that if we just had a little more wisdom or a little more power, that if we could get our act together, that we can somehow merit God's good grace. But that's not true. The Christian gospel offers a different approach to salvation, one that is honest about our brokenness. It does not call us to improve ourselves, to work harder and try more, but it says you can't do it. And isn't that good news? Because in the quietness of our heart, in those honest moments, we know we can't do it. Christian gospel says you can't do it, so don't trust in yourself, but rather trust in Christ and the work that he has already accomplished for you through the cross and the empty tomb. You see, that's what it means to be in Christ. When you place your full confidence in him, you receive all the benefits of being in a relationship with him. John Piper, a pastor and author, is helpful here. He says, in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. In Christ, you were loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ, you are forgiven. Sin and death can no longer lay a claim on you. In Christ, you are declared righteous. In Christ, all God's promises are yes and amen. In Christ, you have everything you need for life and for godliness, and in Christ, you have eternal life. This is what it means to be Christ, and this is true for all of us right now. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what your track record is from this week or this season, this is true of you if you have placed your faith in Christ. The word now in verse 1 signals the beginning of something brand new. You see, God's promise of full and final restoration of all things has already begun. Project Future Glory has started. And we begin to see glimpses of that in our own life. And God accomplished this, how? Through Christ, who became for us a sin offering. Again, in verses 3 and 4, this is what Paul writes. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law here refers to the Old Testament Mosaic law and was supposed to free us. It showed us a door. And if we could walk through that door, we would achieve freedom. 
but we couldn't. Instead, it condemned us by highlighting our inability to obey. So God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What did that mean? It means the full scope of Christ's incarnation. That through his flesh and through his death in the flesh, he might deal with sin. And God condemned sin and appeased his wrath through Christ's death on the cross. And this, again, is not a temporary thing. And it is not conditioned upon our performance This wasn't true the moment we became saved and only true when we are doing well, but this is true at all times for us. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. You know what this means for those who are in Christ? We're no longer debtors. We're no longer slaves. We are no longer guilty and no longer condemned, but we are free. The demands of the law are satisfied, and the boast of sin and death silenced, and we have a receipt guaranteeing everything we just talked about. And it's not a piece of paper that we could somehow misplace or lose, but it's the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us, And he is the one who constantly testifies to the finished work of Christ in us when we can't get ourselves to believe it. This is what it means to be free in the Spirit. And when we begin to understand that we are no longer slaves to the law, sin, and death, but sons and daughters, fully embraced and loved by a loving Father, our perspective changes There's a block on Wisconsin Avenue I try to avoid. It's where Fannie Mae sits uh, in all of its glory. And uh, every time I drove past it, it was a reminder of my debt, you know, that I owed something to this establishment. It hung over my head every time, and it was uneasy. You know, it's like, dang it. But ever since I received the letter saying, congratulations, your student loan is paid off. I make it a point to drive past Fannie Mae. <laughs> you know, it's like, you got nothing on me. You, you got nothing on me. Maybe in 10 years when my kids start going to college. But for now, you got nothing on me. I could drive past that building with my head held up high. See, freedom changes the way we see things, the way we see the law. It is no longer a burden, but life-giving truth that is more precious than gold itself. Earlier tonight, we read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. And, you know, it's hard to believe that people in the Old Testament actually had such high view of God's command. So different from today, isn't it? We're quick to skip over all of that and rush into grace. But the Old Testament people of God received the law as something beautiful, something good, something that reflected the character of God, a window into his heart. And the longest psalm, surprisingly, maybe not so, is a psalm about God's command. And it ought to humble us as we think about God's command. 
But if we are free in Christ, we see the law differently. It's no longer something that points our inability. It is no longer something that guilts us, that shames us. But it becomes God's word, precious word, that gives life, reviving the soul, and becomes precious to us. But not only that, we, got, we see God differently. You know, if we don't grasp our sonship and freedom we have in God, we're quick to run, aren't we? When we're doing well, we come confidently. Yes, I deserve to be here. Look at my week. But when we, not so much, it's like, oh man, I don't know if I should be here. We're quick to hide, quick to run. We ask for time out. Let me get my life straightened out here. Then maybe I can come. No, if we really understand our status and freedom in Christ, we see him not as a tyrant, but as a merciful father who receives us with arms open wide. And at the glimpse of repentance in our hearts, he rushes into us to embrace us. When we understand our freedom, we not only see the law and God differently, but we see other people differently. People are no longer objects to be used or obstacles to overcome. Or in today's political climate, people are no longer the other. We don't draw lines to divide and demonize those people who, and and that we attribute the worst motives to them. No. They're image bearers. When you see somebody else in this building or in this city or anywhere for that matter, I think it would do us well to pause to say that person bears the glory and the wisdom and the creativity of God. And we ought to lean into those relationships with a bit of humility to say, I want to get to know you. We see people differently. And we see ourselves differently. We are no longer what we were. God doesn't see us that way. And so should we. We are no longer what we were. Our sin and our failure do not define us. But His grace does. And we must then celebrate this freedom. How? Through obedience. Through obedience. Now, some of you right there might be thinking, wait, freedom and obedience, they don't go together. Or do they? You see, the Bible clearly distinguishes freedom from license. The idea that I can say and do whatever I want, but self-abandonment, as you know, leads to captivity. Never freedom. So let's talk about obedience. Obedience. New life in the Spirit really takes off when we understand our identity in Christ 
and appropriate our new identity in our everyday life. You see, Christian faith does not end right here. We're not called to restructure and reorient all the theological ducts in our head. No, we are then to take that and to apply it into who we are and what we do. In word and deed, we're to appropriate this new life that we have in the Spirit in all that we do. And it takes practice. It takes time. A buddy of mine, when I caught up with him in my trip to Korea back in October, told me about his new role as the president of the company. And uh, I thought he would be glowing with this new opportunity to make a difference in the city he loves, with the people he cares deeply for, and in the company that he really believes. And he said, you know, for a long time, it was really, really difficult. And I said, yeah, obviously. I mean, you're in this role. You're in charge of thousands of people. He said, no, 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 no. I'm in the same company working with the same people, just the floor up. And I had to constantly remind myself that I am no longer what I was before I got promoted, that I'm in this new role with new responsibilities. And every morning on his commute to work, he would say, I am now the president of the company, not in a boastful way, but to remind himself of his new status and responsibility. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of exercise that we all as believers ought to do. We should regularly remind ourselves who we are in Christ. That's why I think Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. You see, Our mind is a spiritual battleground. Whatever captures it captures our heart. Whatever captures our imagination captures our affection. This is how we work. And that's why we got to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly until we get a firm grasp on the new reality called the new life in the spirit. So that this would trickle down here to reorient, to transform our affections. See, we need to override our default setting to think biblically. You know, in my family, whenever something goes wrong, the first word that is uttered out of all of our mouths is Daniel. It could be anything. Daniel is our three-year-old son. It could be anything. The weather. Daniel, I mean, uh, the weather. You know, earlier today, we were, uh, you know, running errands and on our way home, and, and James, my five-year-old, now six-year-old son, and, and Hannah, uh, how old is she, seven? Seven-year-old. Oh, they, they got in an argument. They got in an argument, and out of frustration, James says, Daniel, I mean, I mean, Hannah. And I thought, this is so indicative of all of us. We, ha- we, we are hardwired to think differently. And over the years, we've reinforced that. 
And it's going to take a lot of time for us to override our default settings and the way we think and the way we deal with people and the way we see God even. Paul put it this way in verse 5. He said, don't let your mind, don't set your mind on things of the flesh, but set your minds on the things of the spirit. You're going to gravitate toward that. You're going to be mindful of the fleshly things. And, and the flesh here does not refer to the physical body, but a sinful disposition that we've become accustomed to. That's what you're going to gravitate towards. That's why you need to stop yourself, wherever that may be, and start preaching a different message to be mindful of the truth. And even then, even as we know we should do this and we do this, we need constant reminders. And I know our sister Grace Han shared a little bit about her community group experience. These are small groups that meet throughout the week. We're on break and we'll start here in a couple of weeks, but I want to again put a plug in for our community groups. We say it's the backbone of the church because in many ways it's the lifeline for our people. You need, outside of Sunday worship, you need something in your weekly rhythm where you get together with fellow Christians to dive into the Word, to pray together, to encourage and admonish one another. You need that. So if you're not in a community group already, I want to encourage you to do so. And if you are in one, please be patient. There are no such things as perfect community groups. Okay? But God has called you there. So in the meantime, love, serve, and grow together with them. But here's an important question that we all need to ask. Where's the strength for obedience? I get that obedience grows out of freedom. That sounds great. But where is strength and hope for obedience? It is not try harder or do better because that can only go so far. When I ran the 5K a month or so ago, probably for the first and last time, because uh, I'm not a runner by any stretch of the imagination, uh, I almost finished the race without stopping. I did. I almost finished the race without stopping. And afterwards, upon reflecting the whole thing, I thought, you know, if I trained harder or prepared better, I probably could have finished the race. I probably could have. And, and, and that may be very well the case for 5K, but not for obedience. On our own, we cannot overcome the powerful impulses of the flesh. We should never underestimate the power of sin that dwells in us. Sin is not something to be trifled with. We should never minimize it or ignore it. And the moment you find yourself comfortable with it, know that you're in deep water. It is a blessing to have that voice speak in your mind, urging you to repent to turn, to get away from that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And you should receive that with open heart and act upon it. Apostle Paul does not mince words here in verse 13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death 
This is not just put it to the side, sweep it under the rug, ignore it. No, you put it to death. The deeds of the body, you will live. Andrew Murray said this. He said, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him, listen carefully here, from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. We don't talk like this anymore, do we? Mortification of sin. But you see, our status as freed people, no longer under the law, but under the Spirit, we can put sin to death. It's not try harder or do better, and it's also not don't try at all. There is this false notion that because grace is free, that it must somehow be automatic. So I'm just going to sit back, relax, and wait and watch for God to do what he said he would do. No, God has given us what's called the ordinary means of grace, channels by which he gives Christ to us, the word, prayer, and the sacraments. We talked about that this past week at winter term. These are God's ways of working his grace, not only saving grace, but sustaining grace in us. Okay? And it assumes that we, as recipients of this grace, will not simply sit back and become spectators, but that we would engage by faith the word, prayer, and the sacraments. You see, we're not mere props in the story of God's redemption, and we are not relegated to the bench to somehow watch God do his thing and at the end stand in applause for all the good things. No, we are active players. Not that we're going to get everything perfect and right. No, we're called to be faithful in this calling. We all mess up. But we're called to try to step on the field, to stretch our spiritual muscles, if you will, and engage in the things that God wants to bless us with. The Bible clearly states our responsibility. You can't get around that. Even in today's text, Apostle Paul says, we are to set our minds on the things above and we are to live by the Spirit, to put to death sin it's here so if it's not try harder or do better or don't try at all then how can we obey how can we obey the answer surrender surrender how do we surrender you see surrender is a posture of our heart it's a posture of our heart of course we do that in many ways, but one of the ways that we express this humility and surrender is through prayer. Paul Tripp, uh, Christian thinker and writer, uh, he wrote this based on the Lord's Prayer. He says, really, praying is surrendering. 
In prayer, he says, we surrender to someone more ultimate than us, our Father in heaven. In prayer, we surrender to a plan bigger and better than ours. Your name, not mine. Your glory, not mine. Your kingdom, not mine. And prayer is how we surrender our rights to live as we want. Your will be done, not mine. And prayer is surrendering our hope in life to God's grace. And when we learn to surrender to God in prayer, we begin to understand the sufficiency of his grace. It's when Paul said, God, I don't know what to do with this. God responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power made perfect in your weakness. You see, as long as you think you have all the wisdom and power to get through this life and even afterwards, you will never experience and glory in his grace for you. So spiritual battle, of course, in one sense, is fighting with the evil spirits, that are invisible to us. I believe that. But for many of us, I think spiritual battle is learning to bow our hearts in submission to the Spirit's transforming work in us. Because even then, we want to push against that to say no. My will be done. And as we come to engage God, we begin to experience the beauty, the goodness of letting go. To say, not mine, but yours will be done. And when we pray that God gives us strength to overcome, people ask, can I really be changed? Because I feel like I'm just managing my sin, maybe modifying my behavior. Maybe I'm becoming a better person, but am I really changing? And I would say, absolutely yes. If you engage in the means of grace and appropriate this new identity, new life we have in the Spirit in your everyday life, and you learn to surrender to God in prayer and wait on Him for His strength, you find resurrection power at work in you. That's what Paul says. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead, he then works in us to give us new life. And we begin to have new appetite for the things of God. And we learn to say no to sin. Sometimes out of discipline, but sometimes out of delight. And that is a life that you and I have been brought into. That's the life we can enjoy here, now, as we await the, the fullness of that life to come upon his return. So let me wrap up by saying this. Never, never underestimate 
obedience. Every time you learn to say no to your flesh and everything that inside of you that says, my will be done, every time you buck against that and you say no, you should celebrate that. Because it is the evidence of God's resurrection power working in you. You and I, in our own, can never come to a point where in our own nature could actually say that and do that. But in Christ, in the freedom that we have, in the new identity we have, in the new life we have, we can. So let's, as God's people, practice this as we learn to love people well, serve this city well, even at great cost to ourselves. That our lives here and now as we await full glory will be marked by even small victories that reflect his glory. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. Thanks again for the new life we have in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.